0: If you have a Bible this morning, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter six. That's where we're going to be this morning, uh, looking at the first thirteen verses of that letter, of that chapter of this letter. It's a, an old letter, obviously one of the earliest Christian writings. It's been saved, we believe, by the providence of God because we still need what it says. One of the things that it says over and over. One of the purposes for this letter, what makes it different from other letters, is that Paul was writing to some people who were being tempted to believe untrue things, false things about what Jesus is, who he is and what he claims and what he calls for from his followers. They were being tempted to see Jesus as a means to get ahead in this life because they were ladder climbers. They were always looking for new opportunities to make a name for themselves, to make a mark and stand out. After Paul had left them, after he'd founded this church, uh, some teachers had come in basically teaching them, it seems like, from what we can cobble together, teaching them that, that they should be looking for success when they're looking for who to follow. They've been telling them that Paul was not successful, that you don't want to follow him. Now, this letter is a lot, uh, largely Paul's defense of his own ministry so that his friends won't settle for some sort of cheap imitation of what Christianity really is. We got that same theme that comes out here in, in the first 13 verses of chapter 6. And we're going we're gonna to look to that in just a minute, but we're going to sort of get a set up. Uh, last week, I guess it was, I got my hands on a new, a new book called The Happiness Effect. I don't remember the subtitle, but it's something about how social media is changing college students everywhere. Something like that. It's, a, it's a, the latest study out of this, uh, this research center up at Notre Dame that studies... Uh, the Spiritual Lives of Young Adults have been doing great work for the last almost 20 years or so. And this is just the latest book to come out of the work of that research center. Uh, a, a woman named Donna uh, uh, Freitas is the author. Um, so the happiness effect. What she's done is she's traveled all over the country, going to colleges in lots of different geographical areas, talking to, going to colleges with lots of different ethnic and, uh, ethnic backgrounds and the majority of their students. Uh, she's talked to, to Students, or different state schools and private schools, liberal arts colleges and big colleges that actually teach a bunch of sciences and engineering school. I mean, all sorts, all the different kinds of schools that are out there, she's seen them. More than 200 interviews go into this book. so It's, it's well-researched. And here's what she found. She's asking them questions about how they use social media and what effect social media is having in their life. What she found was somewhat surprising. She says that most of the attention-grabbing headlines about what young people are doing with social media these days are a lot of gloom and doom scenarios about the, these, these serious dangers, these attention-grabbing dangers of predatory behavior or cyberbullying or risque photos being shared or students being driven to suicide by the way they were treated online. She found those problems were there. They're not, it's not that, that those are not real issues. But those problems aren't widespread at all, she said. Shouldn't be as worried as we are about those problems that capture our headlines. Much more significant is a more subtle problem she found. One that's not going to catch headlines, but that has a powerful influence throughout the lives of these students. And this problem showed up no matter where she was geographically. No matter what ethnicity the students she was talking to, no matter what their socioeconomic background was, no matter what kind of religious affiliation they had or didn't have, same problem across all those lines. One predominant theme: quote, the importance of appearing happy. That managing their Facebook profile, or Instagram accounts, or what have you, has become to them something of a homework assignment, a chore. Certainly not something they look forward to. Something they can't not do because it's important to to the the, the social life that, the lives that they're living. It's a heavy burden to carry. She got this theme everywhere she went. And it's become something of a a vicious cycle that she calls the happiness effect. This is what it's created. Listen to this quote. Because young people feel so pressured to post happy things on social media, most of what everyone sees on social media from their peers are happy things. And as a result, they often feel inferior because they aren't actually happy all the time. That's what she calls the happiness effect. Let me read that one more time, make sure you get it. It's a vicious cycle because people, people feel so pressured to post happy things on social media most of what everybody sees on social media is, is happy as a result people feel inferior because other people seem to be a lot happier than they are do you feel this pressure? I wonder if that, does that sound familiar? are you happy? you think you should be? This thing connects to what Paul's talking about in Second Corinthians six. Take my word for it for now, I'm gonna show you in a minute. It He's like I said, he's appealing to his friends to trust him, to come back to Him, to, to reject this bad teaching about what Christianity is, this false teaching, and to commit again to the message he gave them when he first introduced them to Jesus. We're going to read the text in a moment. I want you to notice that the first couple of verses are him appealing to them with this deep and passionate plea. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to embrace this message and not to receive the grace of God in vain, the grace of this word coming to them so they've heard of Jesus. Then at the very end, the last couple of verses, in what we're going to read, he's appealing to them again. He's saying, look, I've spoken freely to you. I'm a wide open book. I've held nothing back. Open your hearts to me too. Come back. What I want us to focus on this morning is is what comes in between. There's an appeal to them to believe at the beginning, an appeal at the end, and in the middle, a long, lyrical, beautiful description of Paul's way of life. What he's describing in verses 3 to 10, heart of this passage, what he's describing is what he believes to be authentic, genuine Christianity. This is what it looks like to live a life that's truly Christian. He wants to remove obstacles to genuine faith in Jesus. He wants to clarify what it's really all about. And his life is a template of the lives that genuine Christians should live, an indicator of what we should expect from our lives if we want to be with Christ. So what should we expect? What should we expect from our lives if we want to be genuine followers of Jesus? Paul's going to point us in that direction. Now I want to read the text first you would please stand with me in honor of God's word I'm going to read chapter 6 verses 1 to 13 and then we're going to we're going to pick apart verses 3 to 10 this morning listen to how Paul sets this up working together with him then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain for he says in a favorable time I listen to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you behold now is the favorable time Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. This is where we'll dig in. What commends him? What does genuine Christian ministry and Christian living look like? Well, here you go. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. You guys sold? Does that sound good? Now listen. Listen to the turn in verse 6. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as the children. widen your hearts also. This is God's word. you can be seated. Christians are supposed to be happy? What should we expect? of our lives if we want to follow Jesus if Paul's model for Christian living is the true one what should we expect? well first we should expect our lives to be sorrowful second at the same time we should expect to be rejoicing always we should expect our lives to be sorrowful that's the first point I want you to notice. This comes from verses 3 to 5. That's where he makes this turn. Describing it for, for them what he's going for in his ministry. He wants to just lay the path out there to remove any obstacle, any sort of misunderstanding that might keep you back from Jesus, to remove that, get that out of the way so that you can have a straight and narrow path to the hope that Christ can give you. What does he have to do to remove that obstacle? How does he commend himself? Well, in verse four, you, you miss this in the, in, in the translations we have, but there's a banner that hangs over that whole laundry list of categories that he gives you for understanding his life. You know, it's almost like a lyrical poem. The way that passage builds on itself at the top as a sort of banner headline for it that comes through a little more clearly in the original language than in our translation is his claim to great endurance. Everything that comes next explains what he means by great endurance. His ministry is commended. It's shown to be true and genuine because of his great endurance. Now endurance only makes sense where you're facing things that are hard. Nobody has to endure Caribbean vacations, do they? No, you endure root canals, stomach viruses, football off seasons. What did did Paul have to endure? He's brutally honest here. What did Paul have to endure? The main sign of his genuine ministry is endurance. What did he have to endure? Well, look at the honest list he gives us. He endured hard things that happened to him just in the normal course of life. That's the first three. In afflictions, he says, hardships, calamities. These are just bad things that happen in life. Think car accidents or job loss or cancer diagnosis. Paul was shipwrecked, for example. When all he was trying to do was take the gospel to people who hadn't heard it. He's just on a ship trying to get to another part of the ancient Roman world. And the thing goes down in a storm. That's a calamity. That just happened to him. Then he's on this island. He's just trying to get warm by a fire. Maybe cook a little food. Recover a little bit from the trauma of this shipwreck. And he gets bit by a poisonous snake. Calamities. Afflictions. Hardships. Just life happened to Paul. Next three things, he shows us he had to endure evil things done to him by opponents. It wasn't just the hard things that happened over the course of a normal human life. He actually had people after him. So he says in verse 5, I had to endure beatings and imprisonments and riots. The book of Acts tells some of these stories. He was stoned. He was thrown into jail. Mobs rose up against him in public places and wanted to kill him. He endured things done to him. Then, then he goes into the things that he endured that he willingly chose for himself. As an ambassador for Jesus, with eyes open, he chose for himself labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He worked hard. He was a tent maker alongside of his work as an apostle. He, was, he had just like a normal job that would have been hard. It would have had deadlines. He had to deal with customers who maybe weren't happy with the tents that he built them. I mean, he, he worked hard. He wrote letters like this one. This is not easy to do. These letters are hard to write. He wrote a bunch of them. He was a voracious student of the law, God's word, of what other apostles were saying about Jesus. He worked hard. He endured sleepless nights, the stress that you live with when you feel responsible for people who you love, but who are in pain. Or in crisis. He had nights like anyone who's carried that load will have, staring at the ceiling, wheels that won't stop turning in your head while you look for any way of bringing some order to this thing you feel responsible for but can't control. He even dealt with hunger. He wasn't in this for the money. Sometimes he didn't have food to eat, much less a place to lay his head. Paul's life was hard. And he knows he has been criticized for this hard life. His life didn't look successful. It didn't show well. It wasn't enviable. That was a weakness in the eyes of the Corinthians. But here he's doubling down. He's shooting straight. He knows this is not what they want to hear, but he's not going to put any colored filter on this news. This is what he means by not putting obstacles in anybody's way. So why? Why do we need to hear this? Why do we need to hear this to avoid any obstacle to actually coming to Jesus? That's why he's telling us with honesty about his hard life. Well, we need to hear this because there's a word of comfort in it for us and there's a word of challenge in it for us. Let me give you the comfort first. You might need to hear this because you assume that genuine Christianity is carefree and therefore not for you with all your cares. started out this morning with the question, are Christians supposed to be happy? If what you mean by happy is chipper, lighthearted, fun-loving, shucking and jiving all the time, if that's what you mean by happy, then no, absolutely not you need to hear that because if that's what it's supposed to be, you know it's not for you, don't you? That would be an obstacle in your way if you thought that's what Christianity was. And Paul wants to remove that obstacle. Many of you are sitting out there, even this morning, grieving over the death of someone that you love. Others of you are facing chronic and lifelong illnesses. Some of you are living with all consuming marriage problems. Many of you feel hemmed in by fears about money. Some of you wake up every morning to disappointment over how different your life is from what you wanted it to be, maybe from what it is for other people. These aren't hypothetical categories that a preacher just plugs into his sermon to make it seem gritty and relatable. These are true conditions I know for a fact you're dealing with because I know you. And if all you hear is shucking and jiving, now I'm happy all the day, Christianity, then you'll think Christianity isn't for you. Or you'll be tempted to fake it till you make it. Friends, authentic Christianity, the kind Paul is holding out to us here, the kind he was modeling in his own life, is Christianity, a way of life, modeled on Christ. The prophets wrote of Christ as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the Gospels told of Christ as a man who had nowhere to lay his head, as a man whose life was driven on a laser-focused course towards death. The message of the gospel, the heart of true Christianity, is that Jesus died a death that you were meant to die for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. That he willingly embraced a life of sorrow so that your life could be defined by joy. That he went to this length to redeem sinners because he knew that he would be your only hope. The only hope and redemption for people who can't be chipper and lighthearted about their lives. Christianity, genuine Christianity, is only for people who are too honest to be chipper and lighthearted about life. That means it's for you. That's the comfort here. It's for you. If you'll have him. There's also a challenge, though, in what Paul has put in front of us here. Paul's honesty about the hardships of his life is a challenge to us. Friends, you can't be unable to admit sorrow in life. Maybe that's an issue for you. Go back to the book that I mentioned earlier, that's happiness effect. I wonder if you feel that happiness effect that she's writing about, where you you feel like you got to project happiness, whether it's on social media, just in your friendships, in in, in your conversations, Wherever. If you feel like you've got to be happy to show some sort of success in life, that you're winning at the game of life somehow, do you feel that? If you do, you need to be challenged by Paul this morning to lay that down. Because you can't be with Jesus and play that game. Maybe you need to be challenged in another way, though. Maybe you need to be challenged... To, to realize that, that you shouldn't be surprised by sorrow in life. Maybe, maybe your issue is you can't admit sorrow in life. That's, that's one problem. But, but there's another problem, I think, for many of us, especially living where we do and when. We can be hard-pressed to expect sorrow in the way that the Bible tells us to. And that way it makes us surprised by it when it comes into our life. We need to be realistic about what Paul is teaching us to expect, about what Jesus taught us to expect. We need to reject, in other words, all forms of what's known as the prosperity gospel. Now, you, you may have come across this gospel, this prosperity gospel, in some of the more corny versions of it that that TV preachers are slinging around, what with their perfect hair and their big toothy grins and their nice folksy southern charming ways. And I imagine most of you probably aren't that drawn in to teachers like that. You're not going to be the most likely to be tempted by somebody who's telling you that the essence of Christianity is promised that that if you have enough faith, if you really believe that, that God will give you what you want, God will make you happy. But I think there's another much more subtle version of these same assumptions that is in us whether we recognize it or not and shows up when hard things happen to us and we blame God for them. We react with a kind of resentment towards him as if we're not getting what he promised us, as if we're getting some sort of raw deal, as if the hardships of this life weren't the very reason he came to us to begin with, the sort of baseline expectation where Jesus makes sense in the first place. You might assume that if God were for you, he would protect you from hardship. That the things that you love won't be taken from you, the things that you want won't be that you want won't be held back from you. That life can be fully customizable, but it isn't. Don't be angry or frustrated with God as if He's given you less than He promised. Don't doubt him as if the pain you feel has pulled back some sort of veil and exposed him as a fraud. Hard things in life are the reason he's come, not evidence that he's not here like he said he would be. If Paul's our model for what to expect from genuine, authentic, commendable Christian life, if that's what Paul is in this list, then what we should expect is sorrow. Sorrow. We should expect life to be sorrowful. But that's not the end of the story. At the same time that we should expect life to be sorrowful, Paul tells us we should also expect to be always rejoicing. At the same exact time that we should expect sorrow from life, we should expect joy. This comes out in verses 6 to 10. This is where genuine Christianity shows up, he's telling us. So far, he's described only his circumstances, and they're not pleasant. You know, they're, they're hardships, calamities, afflictions, beatings, riots, imprisonments, labors, and sleepless nights, and hunger. All he's just describing circumstances so far, and all of them are bad. But then in verse six, in verse six, he shifts to the way he experiences life in those circumstances, and that's where things get really surprising. As he's going through these afflictions and calamities and hardships, as he's holding on through beatings and imprisonments, as he works hard and sleeps little, Paul's life is marked by purity. Think of that not not immediately in terms of moral purity, but a kind of unmixed devotion to God, a heart that's unified in love and devotion to him. In the midst of what he's dealing with, Paul's heart stays pure. By knowledge, or maybe your translation says understanding. Think not so much book learning, but perspective. He gets the way life really is. By patience. Not bitterness, not angry that the situation hasn't changed. He's patient in the hard things. By kindness. A concern for the well-being of others in the midst of his pain. Now, what we're seeing here is that circumstances are one thing, but his experience of them, his perspective on them, that's a totally different thing. Paul is not a robot who's programmed by circumstances to respond in the only reasonable way. There are more than one way you can respond to the things that happen to you. That's That's what he's saying. His experience isn't what you'd expect. And that's entirely the point. That's why he goes from verse 6 into verse 7. That's why he goes from the way he's experiencing these hard things to the resources that he has in his hands or in his life to cope with these hard things. He goes from the, the, the purity and knowledge and patience and kindness that he experiences to the Holy Spirit this agent he's already talked about of internal transformation. some uh, God's presence put into the life of his people to make them different from what they are. That's why he points to truthful speech, which could be translated uh, the word of truth. It's a kind of technical term in Paul for the gospel. He has the spirit. He has the gospel. And he has the power of God. So the way that he's holding on in hard things with purity and, and kindness and And love points to some resources in his life that are greater than what we should expect, that are supernatural. And here's why I think he lays it out like this. Remember what he's doing. He wants no obstacles to anybody's faith. He wants honesty about what's real. He wants sincerity. He wants you to know the genuine article when you see it. So he starts with truth about hard things. He doesn't pretend that his life isn't what it is. Then he goes to the character of his experience in those hard things, that it's not what you expect, so that you will ask, how is Paul able to endure what he's endured with the purity and patience and kindness and love that he has displayed? Then you'll be ready to see the only power by which he endures is God's. So the mark of genuine Christianity isn't carefree living. That's a kind of happiness that maybe could be explained by circumstances in your life, any number of factors. You don't need God's power to feel good about life that's good. You don't need the Spirit. You don't need the Word. You don't need the weapons of righteousness that he refers to. That's a kind of religion that's only valuable as a kind of self assurance for the comfortable who need the permission to enjoy their privileges guilt free. Paul's got something else he's tapped into. He's tapped into something that doesn't exist in some sort of fragile ecosystem where the slightest change to its environment means it disappears. He's tapped into something resilient. Who wouldn't be happy if they had everything? But if you're facing calamities and you remain pure in your devotion to God, if you're beat down and imprisoned and respond to those who attack you with patience and kindness, well, that raises questions. How? Why? That's the point Paul's been building to all along. That's the primary marker of his genuine ministry. Not success, not ease, not visible awesomeness, but endurance. Joy despite hard circumstances, not because of easy circumstances. He's got a treasure. He's got something. But it's hidden in a jar of clay. Christian life involves the hard and the joyful, but not one after the other after the other. Not in various seasons that can be joyful or hard, but, but at the same time, in tandem, joy in hardship. That's where genuine Christianity shows up. And that's why he goes where he does in the rest of these verses. That's why he can stay true and even have hope Through honor and dishonor, doesn't matter to him. Through slander or praise, either way, he stays the same. That's why he can handle being misunderstood by people. Treated as an imposter when really under the surface he's true. Unknown and unaccepted by those around him when really underneath it all he is accepted by God whose acceptance matters most. Dying, genuinely. Genuinely. Not just on the surface, not just seems to be dying, but actually is. But still, underneath it all, behold, we live. It's how he can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. What you see is not what you get with Paul. And that's beautiful, wonderful good news. And once again, there is comfort here and a challenge It's time to challenge first. It could be that acknowledging hard things in life is not your trouble. You're good with that. It's joy that you struggle with. I wonder, would your friends describe you as a joyful person? If not, I wonder if it's because you can tend to wear your hardship like a badge of honor. I've certainly been guilty of that. It could be because what you're facing seems insurmountable to you. It could be for a wide variety of reasons, whatever the reason, what you need to hear. It's that you should fight for joy with the weapons of righteousness that God has put in your right hand and in your left. In the right hand for offense. Fight with the promises of God against the things that tempt you to disbelieve them, a shield to ward off lies that come at you and tempt you not to believe God's goodness. Could be you need to be challenged to to take this message that Paul's written here and believe it. That it's possible to be sorrowful but always rejoicing. And here's the comfort. It is this message that I've just challenged you to believe. That resilient joy, even a genuine and authentic kind of happiness, is possible for you no matter who you are or what you're dealing with. What you're dealing with might seem insurmountable. And friends, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I can't. I don't have the authority to tell you you're wrong about the challenges you're facing in your life. Many of you I know are facing things I haven't faced myself my experience is not something i can draw from to give you this promise paul speaks from his experience paul echoes jesus who did have the authority to promise you that nothing you have uh, faced or are facing or will face has the power to rob you of the joy that god gives a joy that doesn't ebb and flow with each, what each day brings a joy that's an undercurrent in your life, there for you to drink from when you need it. What is the mark of authentic Christianity? Endurance, joy in sorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to be going to this conference for a bunch of pastors. I go to these things maybe once every year or so. Every time I go, I'm guilty of this too. Every time I go, I'm always asked, "How's it going? How are things at church?" That's a complicated question to answer. Sometimes I've just answered it with Paul's line here. Well, we're sorrowful, but we're always rejoicing. We're being honest with each other, so we know what we're dealing with. Our people have stood by gravesides this year, hoping on heaven. Our people have faced conflict with each other this year, but they didn't shrink back from it and they didn't let it spread out. Our people have been gripped by unwanted temptations that seem irresistible, but they're walking in the light and they're longing for holiness. We're all dying, and yet we live. How's it going? We're (laughs) sorrowful, but we're always rejoicing. And that is the mark of our genuineness. God, this is a work you have done in us and will have to keep doing in us if we're to hold on. To give us honesty about what's hard and joy in the midst of it. And so we look to you again like we do each day and each week to give us this gift. Thank you for Jesus who's modeled it for us and done way more than model it. Who's bought this gift for us with his own blood. Help us to trust him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.